by a show of hands, how many of you have seen any of the Star Wars movies? So that's almost all of us. Great. If you haven't, then don't worry. This sermon message is not all about Star Wars, nor even is this introduction. But you all know, if you've seen Star Wars, that the very beginning, there's a bunch of words on the screen, and they're like ascending up. And they're telling you kind of the stage or setting the background and the history of what's going on. And, and maybe you Star Wars buffs can correct me if I'm wrong, but don't all the movies start with these ascending words on the screen? Well, in this message, I want to start by setting the stage in our introduction. I want this to be kind of like those ascending words, and then scene one opens in Luke 14. You're like, oh, okay, now I know what's going on. Now, if you never read those words in Star Wars, and you're just like, okay, let's just watch the movie, then maybe you can be one of those people that tunes this part out. But I promise you, if you tune in right here and you listen to these ascending words, when we get to Luke 14, this is going to make a whole world of a difference. Okay, the story that we're about to see is an ongoing conversation that's about 700 years old. In other words, the book of Isaiah is a prophecy that through the prophet Isaiah, he said many different things. And in the beginning of his prophecy, he talked about a day when a Messiah would come, and the Messiah is the special anointed leader who would one day make everything right for God's people. When he would come, there would be this great, magnificent banquet, good foods, rich wine, all peoples from all the different nations, not just Israel, will be around the table for this banquet. And then some very familiar words, if you've ever read Book of Revelation. Death will be no more. Tears will be wiped away. It will be a glorious day of salvation. Years later, Isaiah has gone on and passed. The Israelites went through exile, through judgment from God. They lost their land. Many of them had to learn a new language because they were living in Babylon, and many of them were Aramaic speakers, not Hebrew speakers. So when they returned to their land, some of their worship service, like imagine this one, they would read the scriptures in Hebrew, and then somebody would stand next to the speaker, the, the priest, and then he would translate in Aramaic because there were that many Aramaic speakers. Okay, now, one time around the days of Jesus... Somebody decided, and a group of people decided to translate the whole Hebrew Bible into Aramaic. This is called the Targum, and it's, it's similar to maybe if some of you have read different Bible translations that we have in English. Have you ever heard of the Message or the New Living Translation? It's not trying to translate everything word for word, but it's translating the general idea thought for thought, and it's, it's rather loose if you put it that way. It it's adds a few ideas or phrases that kind of show you what people thought about those passages in the days of Jesus. So here we are. If we look down at the Targum in the days of Jesus at Isaiah 25, you find Yahweh is making a great meal for all peoples on his holy mountain. So far, so good. The Gentiles think that this meal will be to their honor as well, but actually, the Targum says, it will be to their shame. There will be great plagues that will come upon them that they cannot escape from and will bring them to their end. 
Yeah, they were a little free in the translation there. That's not what Isaiah 25 said. But people in Jesus' day are reading things in Aramaic, like Isaiah 25 from the Targum, and they're seeing a very different picture of this messianic banquet. But, but the Targum's not the only book. There's another book called the Books of Enoch, and in this book it says there would be a great banquet. That sounds right. It said that all the Gentiles would gather around at the banquet at the table. Okay, check number two. It sounds like we got Isaiah 25 again. Then it says that an angel of death will come down with a sword and slay all the Gentiles at the table, and there would be blood flowing like a river in the banquet hall. Whoa! Where did that come from? That wasn't in Isaiah 25 either. One more book. In the Qumran community, there was the group called the Essenes. If you were here a few weeks ago, we, we talked about the four different groups. The Essenes were those that would distance themselves from everyone else. They would hide in caves and say, the world is bad, we're good, we're going to just isolate and keep our heads in the sand. The Essenes had a, a, a writing, a scroll called the Messianic Rule, and it said the Messiah would come. And this is a, a different note I want you to tuck away. It says that the chiefs, the prominent people, will sit at the banquet table right before the Messiah, closest seats to him, those who have the greatest dignity according to their place and status in life. And on that same scroll, it said, no one will attend this banquet if they are paralyzed with their hands or their feet. No lame people, no blind people, no deaf or dumb, no one with any blemishes in their flesh is allowed at this banquet. The ascending words conclude, open the stage, scene one begins. Look down with me at Luke chapter 14, verse 1. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy, and Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Here in scene one, starting in verse one, the first thing we notice is that it's the Sabbath. If you know anything about the Sabbath, there's lots that we could discuss here, but the simple idea is you're not allowed to work, and Pharisees had extra rules written down about when work was work and when that was not work. I remember reading something about how it's work to turn on lights so even modern-day Jews have these kind of rules that, like, Friday night, the day before Sabbath, they turn all their lights on so that way they can see during the day, the next day. Then, when Sabbath day ends, they can turn all the lights off. Things like that about what work was and work wasn't. And there we see, on this Sabbath, a ruler of the Pharisees is the host. They're dining at the house of not just any Pharisee. This word here shows that it is a prominent Pharisee. It is the Pharisee of Pharisees. 
And notice the phrase at the end of verse 1. They were watching him carefully. Now that's actually not new. If you've been following along, if you turn back one page in Luke chapter 11, verse 54, we saw earlier when we were studying through Luke's gospel that in verse 53 and 54, that as Jesus went away, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something that he might say. The Pharisees have been watching Jesus for a little while now. And they're watching him to catch him. They're not watching him like, oh, I wonder what he's going to eat. Oh, you know, like, What's Jesus do? Where's he going to sit? They're, they're watching him and hoping that they can find a reason to accuse him and bring him down. Look at verse 2, chapter 14. And behold, there was a man before him who had leprosy. Why does, why does Luke give us this word behold? Like, whoa, pay attention here. Or surprise, or What's going on with the man with dropsy? One thought could be that he's just a surprise guest that nobody was expecting to come. And it's like, look, behold, wow, out of nowhere, some dropsy guy who's sick comes right in the middle of their banquet. Or, more likely, as Daryl Bach points out, Notice all the surrounding context. Notice what's already happened in Luke chapter 12. They're watching him. More than likely, this man here is planted. He is a trap for Jesus. He has been invited by these Pharisees to be in the banquet so that way they see, wonder what Jesus is going to do with this guy. And what does Jesus do with this guy? He heals him. Because the prophet said that when the Messiah come, The lame would walk, the sick would be healed, and Jesus was the Messiah. So, of course, he brought healing just like he was supposed to. But you'll notice that after he healed him, Jesus sent him away, more than likely because he knew this guy was not supposed to be at this banquet. The sort of meals that are being had in this context with the prominent Pharisee were only for those people who were the best. And remember what the Essenes said. The great banquet certainly won't have people who are sick and lame. There was a thought that they would have been outcasts and they were being punished with their sickness because of their sin. So they were ostracized from the religious community. Jesus is not sending him away because Jesus doesn't want anything more to do with him. Sending him away because this man wasn't ever invited to begin with. This was a trap. Jesus then asks, Now, if any of you had a son or an ox fallen into a well on the Sabbath day, would you not, because you're a normal human being, help pull them out? And the answer is rhetorical. Of course they would. They can't admit that, though, so they sit there and remain silent. They could not respond. In other words, the Pharisees tried to trap Jesus, but who's trapping who? Jesus turns the tables and shows them that they are not being lawful to Moses' law. And they are hurting the very heart of God as they 
ostracize the hurting, the sick, the lame, and they embrace ideas that are contrary to God's kingdom. That's the end of scene one. Let's look down at scene two, starting in verse seven through 11. Knowing that context of this meal and what just happened with the healing, Jesus told a parable to those who were invited. When he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be exalted, and he who humbles himself will be exalted." Now, the first thing we see is that Jesus tells a parable, and sometimes we get the idea that parables are like little moral stories where Jesus is teaching a little lesson. Oh, there's a lesson, but it's not like a little fun Mr. Rogers story kind of lesson. This is subversive. It's provocative. It's pointed. Jesus died because of saying these kind of parables. How many times did Mr. Rogers die because he told a story with some choo-choo trains running around? I mean, nobody kills Mr. Rogers for telling a nice moral story with a happy ending. This story is made for these scenes and contexts because Jesus notices the way people are choosing the places of honor. So he says, hey, I want, I want to tell you guys a story about a wedding banquet. So we all have been to weddings, I'm assuming. You ever been to the meal after the wedding, the, the wedding banquet in modern day, the wedding reception. You notice most weddings at the reception, they have what's called the head table. Are we all on the same page here? Head table? The bride and the groom, then the best man and the maid of honor, groomsmen, bridesmaids. He's saying it's, it's like the host of the wedding party has invited these guests, and somebody audaciously and ridiculously decides, hey, I'm going to go sit in the best man seat. But they're not the best man. So then as the wedding party gets introduced, awkwardly, everybody in front of all these people, this guy says, hey, hey, bud, hey, get up. That's, that's kind of our seat. That's the best man seat. You're, you're not the best man, so you're, you're actually at this table down here. That, that's what's going on in Jesus' story. He says, you all are trying to make your way close to the best seats at this table. You're proud. The story, the, the moral to this story is that he's pointedly telling them, look at your pride. And he says and concludes this, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I wonder how many of us are struggling with pride and presumption and thinking that we deserve something. Oh, wait, how many of us are Americans? <laughs> like, how, isn't that what we all think? We, we deserve more than what we think we already have? Like, we, well, of course I should have air conditioning in our, our church meeting place. Well, of course we should always have nice amenities that most of the world can't ever even dream of having. This is the world we live in and the air we breathe. We're proud people. My question for us is whether we acknowledge that we're proud. 
whether we acknowledge that we think we deserve better, and whether or not we're doing anything to fight the pride in our heart and humble ourselves before God. For every church, if you want to change the words, for every church that would humble himself, they'll be exalted. Is that true of embassy? You know, I'm glad when some of you say, I love Embassy Church. We're just the best church ever. I, I think we're a great church too. But let's not be too proud. Probably not the best church ever. Newsflash. We're a sinful church. We still have problems and issues and inadequacies. Do we know this? Do we acknowledge this? Do we look down on other churches if they do things different than the way we do? I wonder what our spirit is as a church collectively. I wonder what your spirit is individually. C.J. Mahaney has written an entire book on the subject of helping you grow in your humility. I recommend it. C.J. Mahaney, Humility. That's the name of the book. Google it, Amazon it, purchase it, read it with a friend. Maybe I'll give out some free ones next week and come to church and breakfast hour. Wonderful, helpful book. In it, he gives practical advice on how to grow in your humility so you don't exalt yourself and see that God would oppose you for your pride. He encourages you to study the Word of God and notice how big He is. You want to grow in your humility? Grow in your doctrine and understanding of who God is. He encourages us to learn to rejoice and compliment other people. When something good happens to someone else, are you too proud to like be excited for them? Or do you get jealous and envious because you wanted that to happen to you? Pride just manifests itself in so many different ways in our lives. Whether it's trying to sit near the celebrity or the closest seats, get in with the elders or pastors in a church or your boss or workplace. There's all kinds of things that we do just like these Pharisees at the table. C.J. Mahaney encourages us to read every day. Review every day, that is. Review every day at the end of the day. And see, what did God do and give him glory for it? It says, don't be a cosmic plagiarist where you think that you somehow accomplished something with your own strength. Remember 1 Peter chapter 4, serve with the strength that God provides so that he would get all glory and praise. He goes on to encourage us to begin every day acknowledging our desperate need. And then one of my favorite encouragements from C.J. Mahaney, play lots of golf. Now, some of you maybe never played golf, but it's ridiculously hard, and his point is, if you want to grow in your humility, play golf and realize how bad you are, then watch the professionals, or watch the Olympics this week, and then go try and do those gymnastic stunts. Yeah, maybe I'm not as good as I thought. The way of Jesus is the way of humility. Lastly, C.J. Mahaney encourages us to reflect daily on the cross of Jesus because in the same way that he encourages us to humble ourselves before God, Jesus himself preaches and practices what he preaches. You remember Philippians 2, it says, take on this same mindset, that of Christ Jesus, who didn't count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but he, he humbled himself. He left heaven and became a man, the form of a servant, and he became obedient as a servant to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
The way of humility is the way of Jesus. To follow in Jesus' steps is to humble yourself before God no matter what the consequences might be for your loss here on earth because you know God's promise to exalt you. Understand the good news of the gospel and follow the gospel and it will lead you to greater humility. When you realize that Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, he gave up the great banquet to become homeless and empty and a man with no place to lay his head so that you could be invited in. When that penny drops, when that coin sinks down and and you start to think, oh, wow, God has done that for me, humility becomes all the more natural. That's our second scene. Humble himself before the mighty hand of God so that he will lift you up. Scene three, verses 12 through 14. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, if you haven't already kind of realized how our introduction and those ascending Star Wars words are relevant, they're really relevant now, aren't they? Do you see what Jesus is doing? He comes to a banquet where he's invited by a prominent Pharisee, and there before him is a trap from a man who is sick, and he's just a toy, just for their games that they're playing with Jesus. I don't really love this man. And so Jesus turns to the man who was the host, verse 12 says. So first he was talking about the guests and to the guests with his first story, and he's telling the guests, listen, you guys are all jockeying for the best seats, you're proud. Now he turns to the host. These these are fighting words. He turns to the host and he says, when you give a dinner or banquet, don't invite friends or brothers or relatives or rich neighbors because they can pay you back. They can invite you in return. One of the other contexts that you need to understand is what's called the patron system. It's the way even today business men make deals. And so let's say, for example, you've got a customer and you want to keep them coming to your store or paying. So you give them gifts and you have them out for meals and you give them tickets to the Cubs game or whatever. And you just try and pay them all these sorts of wonderful compliments so that way they keep coming. It's a system of, I'll do this so that you will come back and keep giving us money. It's a quid pro quo. Jesus is saying that patronage system, the way to ascend the ladder and and get your context and have these meals so that way you can have further success, that's not the way this works. When you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Notice your rich neighbors. You're trying to make relationships so you can make deals later on. He wants you to invite those that can't repay you, which we probably got to stop and ask, now, should we take these words literally? 
My wife and I are having a big party later today, and, and a lot of you have been invited. In fact, all of you are invited. If you didn't know about it, you want to come, feel free and show up. Four o'clock, my house. Celebrate our son's birthday party. Like, we've made a lot of food, and if we need to get more food, then we'll get more food. But we've invited a lot of friends and family, and we have family from out of town. Are we disobeying the words of Jesus? How do we understand this word, only invite those who are those that can't repay you? Don't invite your brothers or friends or relatives. Man, your pastor must be a a big sinner. (laughs) The idea is very similar to what's going to happen later in Luke 14 in the cost of discipleship section where Jesus is doing what's called an idiomatic speech. It's a figure of speech. He's, He's saying something to startle their attention, but to kind of contrast. So in Luke chapter 24, if you you look down, you'll see Jesus say, you should hate your mother or your father. It's in verse 26. If anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and his mother and his wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now is Jesus literally saying here, you have to hate your wife? You have to hate your mother and father? No one's ever understood that passage that way. Everyone's understood Jesus as saying he's idiomatically using a figure of speech where it's it's kind of like hyperbole. He's exaggerating, but the point is clear. Your love for God and your fellow, your your devotion to Jesus should should pale in contrast to everyone else here on this earth. That That it almost looks like hate. Similarly speaking, our commitment to those who are poor and crippled and lame and blind, so our commitment to them should be so much superior that we're not just doing things to people who can bless us back, and especially with the intention of having them bless us back. Do things in such a way that nobody could repay you, or don't expect it for sure, because you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Simply put, their priorities are just way out of line. And that's what Jesus is pointing out to this host. Your priorities are way out of line. You're having this big party here, and you think that this is like the Sabbath day feasts that are going to foreshadow the great banquet of the Messiah. Not even close, buddy. Not even close. Have you ever heard of the story of the English farmer who had twin calves? So he was a farmer, and the farm was going well. He was successful. Not rich and wealthy, but he was, he was gaining a lot of success in his farming, and he realized that one of the cows was pregnant. And when he first realized she was pregnant, he was like, that's great. I don't really need another cow, so I'm going to sell the cow and make a profit off of it. Then, as time went on, he realized, good news. It's not just one cow, one calf, it's two She's pregnant with twins, and they were born, and when they were born, he said, I want to thank God and dedicate one of these calves completely to the Lord's work, and the other one we will use and help our own financial situation. Several months had passed by, and sadly, the cows got sick, both calves. One of them passed. The man came into the house, sad told his wife, honey, I'm sorry to tell you, the Lord's calf died. And she said, 
honey, we never designated which one was the Lord's and which one was ours. Well, I was sure it was the Lord's, okay? I knew from the very beginning this one was the Lord's and this one was ours, and yeah, the Lord's calf died. So it is with us, isn't it? It's always the Lord's calf that dies. Things get tight. Does your vacation budget get a little smaller? Or does your generosity to those that really need help get smaller? See, that, that's, that's a good parable story for us. Where are your priorities? And Jesus is pointing out to the host of this party that their priorities are not in line with the kingdom of God. There's a clash between Jesus' messianic banquet vision from Isaiah 25 and the way that these men who were prominent Pharisees were hosting parties in foreshadowing the Isaiah 25 banquet. Embassy Church, collectively, are you okay with your elders and your pastor and us as church members giving of ourselves in such a way where we don't get anything in return? Or does it always have to be, well, we're only going to do this ministry if it's going to bring people into the church and more tithers? Children's Hunger Fund is a ministry we've just talked about partnering with. And it's reaching into the homes and the families of people who are under-resourced, don't have food to eat, struggling to make ends meet. Now, if they do join our church, they probably won't have a lot to give. Is that, is that okay? Are you actually excited about Children's Hunger Fund ministry? Is that like, oh yeah, that's good for someone else. I'm glad somebody is encouraged about reaching the poor in our area. Or is this a community thing? Is this a collective spirit that flows from the words of Scripture and says, no, I want to help those who can't repay me with anything. I want to give of myself because God, in His mercy, has given to us and we will never, ever be able to repay. Similarly, with humility, so this scene and story flows from gospel truths that if you understand what God has done for you in Christ, how poor you were, how lame you were, how crippled you were, spiritually speaking, you had nothing to offer, nothing to bring to the table, and yet God in his kindness invites you in. Friends, when you start to realize that truth was for you and you've been invited in, it makes a world of difference when we start now serving the community around us. We're not trying to reach the poor to kind of pat us on the back. Well, we got to do our, our reaching the poor good deeds. We're doing it because of passages like this. In the next couple weeks, we're going to hear about an opportunity for Embassy Church to help a struggling church that's been on a little bit of a rocky time, and we want to help restart their church, like a new church plant. We've mentioned this in previous weeks. You're going to hear more about it in the next few weeks. Last Sunday, as your elders met, we decided unanimously as elders that we want to partner with this church if they will let us be their mother church and help financially if we need to, help with our time, help with our counsel. And it was interesting, in those conversations, Sam's not here, so I'm going to kind of poke and bring Sam as an example. Sam's the chairman of our elder board. At one point in the conversation, there was kind of the question of like, well, what are we getting out of this? What's embassy going to get by helping this other church over in Kankakee? It's an hour and a half away. We, we may not get any members from their church, or we may not get any funds kicked back to us. It's not like they're going to give us a big check, like, thanks for helping us out. Now that we're established, here's money back to you. 
And it was great to know that the chairman of the elder boards here at embassy quickly said, why do we got to do stuff? Because we're going to get repaid. I just so appreciated in that conversation, Sam's able to tell us. The church is a place where we want to generously give of ourselves, our time, our money, and our resources. I hope that as I explain that story, you all are saying, amen, even in your heads if you're not out loud. That's right. I'm glad we have an elder that says it's okay if we just give of ourselves and help a church and we get nothing in return. Is that okay with everyone? Amen? This is where these things come from. Our mission should be shaped by the words of Jesus here and give expecting nothing in return because he has given so generously to you and expected nothing. That's made crystal clear in our final scene. Turn to scene number four. I think this is probably the best of the stories in the scenes. Verse 15. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet. The, the Greek word here is mega. So it's, it's a, this is a big banquet in Jesus' story. This is mega banquet. And he invited many to this banquet. Verse 17, and at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready, but they are all alike, they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it, please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I need to go and examine them, please have me excused. And then another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room and the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Notice the way this story starts off. When one of those reclining at the table heard these things, and at this point we haven't heard any replies back to Jesus' words. So Jesus said the question about the man who was sick that he healed on the Sabbath day, and they stayed silent. They could not respond. Then he tells a story to the guests. We hear no response. Then he turns to the man who's hosting the party. No response. Ah, oh, finally somebody speaks up. And you'd imagine at this point, there's tension in the room. There's awkward silence, like, oh, somebody please say something. And somebody says, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, one commentator, I think, has this probably the best way. He explains that this is like, this guy's throwing him a softball for him to just line it up and then boom, knock it out of the park. What he's doing is testing Jesus again. Like, okay, hold on. If I'm understanding you right, Jesus... Let's just throw out a little test here. I'll make this easy. Not a curveball, just a slow softball, all right? And the way Jesus is supposed to respond is to say, that's right, blessed are those, and all those who keep the law, they will be worthy to sit at the table. Some sort of affirmation to affirm what this man is trying to get at. 
And what does Jesus say? Not that at all. It was like, whoop, swing and miss, struck out. Like in their mind, Jesus is taking this a whole different direction. He tells a story and says, all right, there's a guy that's hosting a huge banquet, mega banquet. In this first century culture, and even to today, if you all got an RSVP from us, we sent out an invitation to a party later today, and then you RSVP'd. Some of you said, yeah, I can make it. Oh, sorry, we can't make it. Now, those of you on the guest list, if you show up to our house, there'll be a moment where we're kind of hanging out and mingling, and then all of a sudden, there'll be that moment where it's like, all right, let's pray and let's eat. Think of that sort of scenario here. This is the second invitation, and now, they don't have Costco back then. They don't have refrigerators. They don't have all the things that we do that if a bunch of people all of a sudden decide not to go to the party or show up or those sort of things, it's not as big of a deal as it would have been here. This is an insult that they RSVP'd to a big grand banquet like this. And then they they go, and as the servant says, okay, everybody, the food is now ready. And then all of a sudden somebody says, oh, sorry, uh, yeah, I just bought a house, and I haven't actually seen it yet, and I've not even looked at it. I didn't even look at pictures online. But yeah, I got to go check out that house that I just bought. Anybody thinking, that's ridiculous. That's Jesus' point. This is a made-up story. He's giving the most absurd example, so that way you hear that excuse, you're like, that's a lame excuse. And then the next one is just as lame. He says, hey, I've got five oxen, and I need to go inspect them. Five oxen would have been like buying a tractor at a big farm, and it cost a million dollars. And you don't just buy five oxen without inspecting. It's like saying, I'm going to go buy the most expensive car on the lot, and I won't even test drive it. I'll just, yep, that's the one I want. The same sort of dumb excuse. I'm going to buy five oxen, not even inspect them, so I need to leave the party. Yeah, I RSVP'd, but something came up. And then you'll love the last one, right? I'm married. And that's all it says. (laughs) Like, what's going on here? Jesus is just, yeah, I got a woman. Sorry, peace. She can't come. All three excuses make the same point. They're lame, and they're insulting. This is why the man responds who hosted the party, as Jesus tells a story, with anger. Did you notice that? He was angry. But This is what I love about this story that Jesus tells. This man's anger and the passion behind it is a fuel that's used to extend God's mercy and his grace. I think right here is one of the best pictures of the complexity of the character attributes of God kind of being all wrapped up in one thing. How does the host of the party be both angry but yet gracious and merciful at the same time? Because that's what God's like. This is what he's trying to say. Jesus' point in this story is that I am the host. God is the host of a grand party like Isaiah chapter 25 And I have sent RSVPs to some invited guests. And those guests were the Jewish people of Israel. And they have all made some lame excuses and have publicly insulted me as the the banquet is now ready. Now, Now notice, that's actually happening in front of Jesus right now. God sends the servant, Jesus Christ, down into the world as the servant representative God in flesh coming down and at a party, at a banquet, he's being rebuked, he's being insulted, he's getting trapped by these Pharisees at the banquet. 
There they are. His own people, the people who RSVP'd, rejecting God in the person of Jesus. So what does God do? Yes, he's angry, but he's so incredibly merciful and gracious, so gracious that he says, go, go out. I want you to invite everybody in the city. Now notice first the language of in the city, meaning go and ask all the people that aren't on the in crowd in the city, but were still in Jerusalem per se, still Jewish. But then he says, go out into the highways and the byways. Go outside the city. Who's outside the city? Gentiles. All nations. And go gather them because the servant says, there's still more room, master. Because this servant knows the God and host of this party has a gracious, loving, generous heart. And so the servant goes out to the highways and byways. And notice the language. Now this is one of those funny passages. It says, urge them, force them to come in to the party. And, and Augustine, if you know anything about church history, so a couple hundred years after Jesus, a prominent teacher in the church used this passage to say, now force people to come to church. Force them to come in. See what it says here? Force them. Compel them. There's a lot of force behind the, the literal phrase here. So this is why at Embassy Church we keep attendance, and if you miss, we force you to come back. No, 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 no. We do not practice that at all. That's missing the point, and I think Augustine is a great hero for many, many people. I think he's written some wonderful things, but here he's wrong. The point is that the people out in the highways and byways, the people that are far off who are Gentiles are being invited to what seems like a Jewish party. They're like, that's not for me. Furthermore, they're not going to be able to repay. The, the patronage system is that, well, if I go to a big party like that, well, then I got to give them an invitation back and invite them to my house. I don't even have a house. I can't do that. And so, therefore, they are going to reject your invitation, but I want you to force them. I want you to tell them, no, 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 the grace of this master is bigger and greater than you ever could have dreamed of. That's the point of this story. The point of this story is to help you all realize, most of you in this room who are Gentile people, the party is for you. He's inviting you to come in. You're like, no, 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 no. I don't have anything good to wear. I don't have anything to bring. I can't invite him back. How am I going to repay him for this incredible invitation? No. Compels you. God, through his spirit, compels and forces you. Yes, come. God's grace is bigger. You should be tripping and stumbling over the grace of God. It's like, is it really that big? Friend, if you're asking that question, you're starting to get it. If you've never asked that question, you may have never gotten it. You've never gotten true biblical Christianity if you're not stumbling and tripling over the fact that God's grace is that wide and that big and that deep. It's for all nations. It's for all kinds of people, including you and me. Don't bring anything. I love the phrase in the story. He says, everything is ready. Just tell them to come in. So it is with the king, kingdom of God and, and God's heavenly feast. Everything's ready. Oh, hold on, hold on. Let me bring my TV dinners to contribute. Don't bring your TV dinners. We don't need your TV dinners to this banquet. We've got a feast that God's provided. That's the idea here. Through the cross of Jesus Christ, through his death on a cross, everything is provided to have entrance into this heavenly banquet. 
Empty hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Come with nothing, come with empty hands. What do your hands have in them? They have your righteous deeds? They have your good works? Your resume? Your lists? Here's why I should be invited in. Here's why I should sit at the the head table. Why I should be right next to the Messiah. Why I should be near God. Just bring nothing. It's ready. And if that seems too good to be true, it's true. It's not too good to be true. It's, that's actually what the whole Bible's all about. God inviting you to this Isaiah 25 banquet being fulfilled through Jesus and ultimately through his death on a cross. So therefore, we, as Jesus followers, should be the servants that are going out and trying to fill his table because, friends, there's still more room. This compels us not only to overwhelming thanks, overwhelming worship, but this compels us to mission. This compels us to go to the highways and the byways, to the, lip, the, cra- the lame, the crippled, the least of these. Has God's grace been so overwhelmingly good that there's a desire to say, yeah, I want to help with Children's Hunger Fund. Yeah, I want to help be a hospitable church here at Embassy. I want to help with children's ministry because I know if I serve those kids and they're all crying, all 10 of them at a time, I'm not going to get anything in return. Maybe a thank you, maybe even not a thank you from the parents when they pick them up. But I know that I want to be a hospitable, servant-like heart and serve here at Embassy so we can be a hospitable church. What's the application for you? How is the bigness and the wideness and the hugeness, did I just make a word up, hugeness, of God's grace overwhelming you to lead you to service and mission? I pray that it would. Let's pray now. Father in heaven, we want to give you thanks for this this scene, this meal with Jesus. What amazing truths you have communicated through this passage of Scripture. What wonderful things for us to meditate on today and think about. Thank you, God, for sending Jesus Christ, the servant who goes in, and even though he's rejected, he continues his mission to make disciples of all nations, to bring all peoples to the banquet feast of heaven. Thank you, God, for Jesus Christ, our host of heaven. And that we don't have anything that we need to bring. Thank you, God, for your amazing grace. This is amazing grace that you would give your life. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Well, what better way to end our service than to take the symbol of the banquet feast here and now as a foreshadowing of what will come. The bread and cup that's about to be passed by is for those of you who would say, yes, I want to come to the the wedding feast of God, but I know that by myself I have nothing to bring. Simply to the cross I cling. If that's you today, then this bread is a representation of you need Christ's body and you need his blood to wash over your sins and take your place. And so as you take the bread, as you take the cup, Believe by faith that that's what God is communicating to you today, that there's an invitation to come. If you're here today and you don't know if you're a Christian and you don't know, I don't know if I get this grace thing. I think I'm wanting to just try and be a good person, and if I'm a good person, God's going to just weigh my good with my bad, and 
If that's you today, then you might want to just let this pass by and keep contemplating what you've heard today. Let it sit for a while. Ask questions. Ask the people around you. Ask me. If you want to learn more about what this amazing grace of Jesus is all about and how that affects the rest of our lives. This meal throughout the scriptures is supposed to be for those who say, yeah, I get it. And I want to participate now because I know what that end will be. We're going to sing this next song, Remain Seated, as the bread and cup passes by. And then we will all hold the bread and cup, and I'll come up and instruct us to take it together. Let's do that now.